back to their classes while you turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. All right, I have instructed the ladies to allow no smells to escape into our auditorium while we preach. I don't know how successful we'll be with that, but uh, you uh, pay attention here. We'll be done quickly. Luke chapter 16. Jesus gave us just shy of 40 parables throughout the New Testament, and one out of three, one out of three parables have to deal with money. Now, it's not surprising that money should have such a dominant role in the teaching of Jesus, because after all, money has a very dominant role in our lives. The statistics tell us that we spend more of our waking time thinking about money than not thinking about money. Think about that one. How to acquire more of it how to spend it, how to invest it. Money and possessions dominate a consuming portion of our lives. And this materialistic attitude, I believe, has cost us. When materialism is the driving force in your life, you'll sacrifice more important things. You'll sacrifice your freedom. You'll sacrifice your integrity. You'll sacrifice eternal rewards. Now, this parable that we're going to read today was given to the same audience that listened to the parable about the prodigal son. So I want you to kind of keep the prodigal son in the back of your mind. He's just finished telling that story. I don't think Jesus has done much. I think the chapter, of course, we know chapter divisions in the Bible are not inspired. The Bible itself is. That was done to help us just uh, separate things. But I don't believe Jesus stopped speaking here. I think he was talking to the same crowd. However, the parable that he gives here is primarily... Not for the Pharisees like the previous three were. The parable now he's given to his disciples. It tells us in verse number one there. And the multitude that was following. This parable is considered by many to be one of the most difficult ones to understand in the Bible. And we're going to tackle it today. All right. Hopefully try to get something that will help us here. The hero of the story is a villain. A crook. The man stiffs his boss. And then he seems to get away with it. And then to help himself, he cheats him a second time. And after Jesus tells the story, he essentially commends him and draws a lesson from a bad example. I want to preach today on the lesson from a crook. All right, the lesson from a crook. Let's read chapter 1, verse 16. uh, Chapter 16, I'm sorry, verse 1. And he said unto his disciple, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be steward. The steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me unto their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said unto him, Take thy bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. And he said unto another, And how much owest thou? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. The Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, Make to yourselves friends of mammon, of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you unto everlasting habitations. Father, I pray you'd help us as we learn now from your word. Help us to deal with it directly and honestly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lesson 
from a crook. Here's a rich man where he had a steward working for him. And when Jesus calls him a rich man, he was a rich man. He had enough to uh, not have to work for himself. He was rich enough to hire a man to run an estate for him. The man that he hired, the Bible calls a steward. In our day and age, we would call him a manager. And these men had a lot of power in the homes that they worked at. Uh, they, were, they had the power to hire and fire. They had the power to uh, uh, set the salaries. He controlled all the business affairs of the estate. The steward ran the whole show. He made all the decisions. He was answerable only to one man, and that was the owner. That meant the steward had unlimited power to do things wisely or to do things foolishly. And that brings us to the problem of the steward here we see in verse 1. Uh, the Bible says he had a problem. Uh, we, see, we see that he failed in his mission. Uh, he said The Bible says he had wasted his goods. The word translated wasted means to scatter abroad, to squander. The very thing that the steward was to do, which was to take care of his master's goods, he failed. The Bible says he wasted them. This was not a lack of skill. This was a lack of character in the steward's life. Now, the word wasted is also used in the chapter before. It means to, uh, it means to basically uh, to, to, to squander, and that's what he did here. The same word is used in Luke 15, 13 for the prodigal son when it says he wasted his substance with riotous living. And there's, in the original language, there's also a little help for us here. The verb tense means that it wasn't only a past tense thing, but it was something that was continual. He was continuing to embezzle money from his master. Now, both of these, the prodigal son and this man, were given a lot of money to be at their disposal, and both of them, the Bible says, wasted them, one of them in riotous living, and one of them was uh, being irresponsible with it. Lack of character is always costly. Lack of character will always cost you much. Wicked men sometimes seem to get ahead. Sometimes we see that there are those that are doing wrong in every aspect of the word. It seems they get ahead, but they'll always get theirs in the end. Ungodliness always produces waste. Wasted resources and ultimately a wasted life. Now, the problem was noticed. Verse 1. Look at the noticing of the problem. The word got out. It always does get out, doesn't it? I read a story of a boy who often used an old fruit tree that was sitting right outside his second-story bedroom window to escape uh, when he got in trouble with his dad or to go out and cause trouble. Uh, he liked to escape out that uh, bedroom window on the, through that tree. And so one day his father, having looked up at that tree and announced to his family he's going to cut down that fruit tree because it hasn't borne fruit in years. Well, he didn't want to lose his play, way of escape. And so what he did is he and some friends went out and got a couple of bushels of apples. And that night in the cover of darkness, they went through that tree and they tied fruit all through the branches of that barren tree. The next morning, the dad steps outside. He takes one look and his eyes pop open and he says, Mary, I can't believe it. He said, that fruit tree that's been barren for years is covered with apples. He said, it's a miracle because it's a pear tree. You know, you can, do, you can cheat the system just so long before somebody starts to notice what you're doing. Sooner or later, cheaters will get caught. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. This is true in every age and in every culture. The steward got him, him uh, exposed. 
Every embezzler, thief, liar, adulterer thinks that somehow they can keep their sin uh, from being revealed and sooner or later it will be. The boss finds out what's going on and he, in verse 1, we see is hopping mad. In verse 2, he pulls a Donald Trump. He says, you're fired, essentially. And he tells him to explain himself. Give an account, he said, of thy stewardship. The notification here that he receives, we see in a statement kind of a surprise by the rich man. How is it that I hear this of thee? Verse 2. The master of the steward, understandably and rightly so, felt betrayed. He had trusted this man. And now he finds out he's a crook. He says, give an account for what you've done. Several things can be involved in giving an account. We know the books are going to be checked. In other words, he basically tells him here to go get the books, get them together, get them to my office, we can give them to the man taking your place. He said, thou mayest be no longer steward. The rich man dealt with evil in the right way. He got rid of it. He eradicated it. Evil must be eradicated. When our two oldest children were little, we had, uh, my wife and I lived out of state from both of our parents, and so we were very shy of babysitters. We just didn't have anybody to watch the kids, and so we didn't have a life for a few years there. And then my brother came up to visit us one summer, and he gave us a, he, uh, he was there for a few weeks, and so the first thing we thought was, now we got a built-in babysitter here. He was about 16 years old, I think. And so uh, he was staying with us. One of the first nights he came, we got ourselves dolled up. We're going to go out and have a date, something we haven't done in a while. And uh, told my brother to watch the kids. This is before we had cell phones. You'll understand that in a minute. So as soon as we're out of the house, um, my brother's 16-year-old boy, okay? As soon as we're out of the house, uh, the, my youngest daughter, we can just say that her diaper fulfilled its purpose, Okay. And my brother wasn't going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. And so what he did in his ingenuity, he, had a, he opened a window, he put a fan in the window pointing out the window, he backs my poor daughter up to this fan, pulls a little coffee table up to the, where, in front of her there, and puts some games and things for her to mess with. And so for about an hour and a half, two hours, there she stood, uh, so that the, the offending smell was sucked out the window. Our neighbors didn't talk to us for weeks. And uh, when we came home, that's how we found her, standing there, playing with her toys. And if she tried to wander, no, 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 you get back there. Get back there and stand in front of the fan. And, you know, as funny as that story is, we do that with our sin. Instead of just getting rid of it, instead of eradicating it out of our lives, we put it over in the corner here to where the smell doesn't offend so much. We kind of hide the consequences of it instead of getting rid of it. Well, he did right. He got rid of it. Uh, today, there are too many people that are lenient towards evil, reluctant to remove evil. We see that uh, politicians can be vile men and yet still often get the votes to stay in office or manufacture them, however they do it. Uh, preachers can be immoral, but many still get up and gather the support to keep their TV shows going. We must deal with evil or it will grow and grow and grow in our lives. He dealt with it. Alright, the steward now begins to get serious. He starts to ponder his future, verses 3 and 4. His meeting with the boss is over. He walks out with his head down. He has one more job to do and then he is completely finished. What's he going to do? He's in a desperate situation here. 
There is no market for stewards that are crooks. Hard to put that on your job application. Who's going to hire an unemployed thief? That's what he would be. Now, notice what the Bible says, verse 3. Then the steward said within himself. This reminds me of what the prodigal son said. When he came to himself. There's another similarity. Both of them stopped and did some serious thinking. Thinking through our problems is a lot better than some folks deal with their problems. Drinking, drugs, denial. It would be wonderful if people pondered the condition of their spiritual life. They need to consider their sinful condition and how it will affect their eternity. They need to resolve to turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. What shall I do, he says. The steward was a man soon to be unemployed. What shall I do is a good question for anyone to ask concerning their spiritual needs and their character and their eternal destiny. But sadly, this question is seldom asked in people's lives. Most people live their life without much serious thought about what's going to happen to them, not only down the road, but after they've passed off the scene. They don't consider the day when their life, like the steward's job, is going to end. He asked, what shall I do? Like the steward, we've also been warned. We've been told that that day is coming. There's no excuse for not preparing. Now granted, the steward should have asked this question long before he did, and he would have saved his job, but he was so busy in his work, in his criminal ways, he never pondered what lay ahead. He's like so many people today who spiritually and their spiritual life is undealt with because they're so busy with their worldly pursuits. They have no time to think about their relationship with God until it's too late. He is like many who pursue selfish gain without thinking of the consequences. And then they get in trouble. That's when they seek help from their pastor or their friends or their spiritual leaders trying to help undo the ruin in their life made with their choices. Can I tell you something? Evil avoided is better than evil repaired. Amen? Evil avoided, oh, just let's just avoid it. So look at the admission here. My Lord, he says in verse 3, taketh away from me the stewardship. Now, if we do not admit that we have a problem, we will never improve our condition. If we, this is a simple conclusion, by the way, but it's foundational to solving our problems. Many people live in denial of their problem, be it physical, be it material, be it spiritual. People live in denial of their problems. I read a story about a man who was distraught over his wife's very stubborn refusal to admit she had a hearing problem. She wouldn't admit it. One day he went to his family doctor and he was talking to him, how do I convince my wife she has a hearing problem. The doctor says, when you get home, here's how you confirm it. You open the door and you, you kind of loud voice in there, you ask, what's for dinner? If there's no response, you go about halfway between you and her in the kitchen and you ask again, what's for dinner? If there's no response, you walk up right behind her and into her ear say, what's for dinner? She'll have no choice but to recognize she's got a hearing problem. So, He's on his way home. He's all excited about how he's going to finally get her to own up, fess up to it. He gets home. He opens the door. What's for dinner? Nothing. It was about halfway. Again, what's for dinner? Nothing. 
So he walks all the way over to her in her ear. What's for dinner, honey? She turns around for the fourth time. I'm telling you, it's spaghetti. You know, sometimes it's easier for us to point out problems in other people's life when we are got the problem. Amen. We got to understand and recognize the problem. He understood his problem here. Sometimes we don't like to admit that we have a problem, especially spiritual problems. We don't like to admit it. Many people will face all of eternity never having dealt with the sin problem in their life, and they're going to forever regret it. It is the devil's scheme to get people to deny that they have a problem in the first place. This way they'll never seek Jesus Christ to save them from that problem. I firmly believe with my heart that John Q. Public does not hate God. He's not shaking his fist at God. He simply doesn't realize he's got a problem. He doesn't know that... But by the way, that's why 90% of people today in America believe in God, but less than 20% are faithful to church. They just don't see their need. don't see their problem. don't realize that there is a spiritual deficit here. It is humbling to admit that you have a problem. But until you do, you'll never solve them. And by the way, it'll be a lot more humbling in the future, as we see in this man. The steward never fought the charges. He knew he was guilty. Spiritually, we need to acknowledge our guilt concerning sin. It is the only way we'll ever be saved from the condemnation of that sin. In this life, you may go to court and win a case even though you're guilty. We've seen it happen far too many times. But you'll never go to the court of heaven, be guilty, and get away with it. We have to answer for our sin in our life. And what's the answer then? Admit the guilt and seek Christ for deliverance. John 3.17 For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Romans 8.1 there, there is now therefore no condemnation in them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So he, he recognized he had a problem. Now look what he says. I find this interesting. I cannot dig. And to beg, I am ashamed. So the steward rejects both work and welfare here to fix his problem. He rejected work. He said, I cannot dig. Digging's hard work. Steward doesn't want to have anything to do with physical labor. You remember, he's been a manager. I mean, he's been, he's been a white-collar worker. You don't want to go out and dig ditches. So he said, I cannot dig. He was lazy. And we have that problem today in incredibly today, don't you think? Trying to find workers. Go out to eat at Applebee's. You can't even get in because there's nobody to work. And lots of other places in town too. People can't find workers. People, we have a lazy generation today. I read this, I like this. Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. The next generation said, give me liberty. Our generation just says, give me. And stops there. This was his problem in the first place. He wanted a shortcut. Wanted a Get by without working. Friend, don't be afraid to work. I love this Chinese proverb. Man stand for a long time with mouth open before roast duck fly in. Makes sense, don't it? Get to work. Even a mosquito has to get to work before it gets a pat in the back. He also rejected welfare. Welfare in these days was begging. He said, I can't dig. I don't want to go to, I don't want to get a blue collar job. I also don't want to beg. Begging is embarrassing, especially when you were at one time an important person, and as he was. And he, wanted to, he didn't want to resort now to standing on the corner with a sign, and people that knew him at one time would now see how far he had fallen. It's interesting, he was ashamed 
to do that, but he wasn't ashamed to defraud his master. Sin does not shame in the way that it should. He had the problem with shame that many people do today. Shame in the physical area, but not in the character area. Like those in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15, where the Bible says, Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. We're in a society today where all kinds of wickedness doesn't shame people anymore. They have parades about it. They throw it in our faces. Wrong is still wrong, though all condone it. Right is still right, though all condemn it. So he came up with a scheme. It's no less crooked than what he did before. He's already been ripping off his master, now he's going to continue. Jesus did not condone the, the, the evil steward's plan here, or the evil in his plan. What he commended was what the steward saw, that judgment was coming, and he made arrangements for it. Likewise, mankind also should prepare for judgment on sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Prepare for this judgment so that you can escape the painful consequences of it. The prophet Amos said, prepare to meet thy God, Amos 4.12. And we ought to always prepare. We're all going to meet him one day. One day your knee will bow before him. It'll, it'll either happen in this life and count, or it'll happen in the next life and it won't count. So I would beg you to make that decision today. Prepare. Look at the policy he came up with. The, I, I like the fact that like the prodigal, once he decided on an action, he got busy. He concocted a very simple scheme. I am resolved. Listen very carefully to the wording here. I am resolved what to do that when I am put out of this stewardship, when I get fired, that they may receive me into their house. Who? They. Who's the they? Well, the they is the customers here he's about to meet. That's the, the key is the phrase that, that, uh, that they may receive me in their house. He was looking for a way to take care of himself once he lost his job. He wants a group of people to feel obligated to him. They'll have me over still. They'll still have something to do with me. So he starts to make some deals. He calls everybody in. How much do you owe? And uh, the first man says he owes 100 measures of oil, about 850 gallons. He rubs that out, puts half down, and he only has to give uh, half of that. He took uh, the next one, said he owned 100 measures of wheat. And so roughly that's a thousand bushels. And he rubbed out a thousand and put in, or a hundred and put in its place eighty. He gave the first man a fifty percent discount, the second a twenty percent discount. The two men didn't know why he did it. Would you care? No. I'll take it. I'll take that deal. This is the steward. I'll wipe out my debt. Suddenly the steward became their friend. The steward basically stole his lord's money to give it to the debtors via the reduction. And now he's buying favors with his master's money. But stealing his master's money was nothing new anyway. He'd been doing it all along. Only two examples are given, but we can assume he went on down the line and did that for everybody. Cheating his master out of who knows how much. Now, here's what is kind of surprising. We come to the part of the parable that causes some confusion. Why would Jesus use this crook to teach us a lesson? To clear up any confusion, notice what is praised and what is not praised. Jesus definitely did not, nor would he ever praise evil. Look at verse 8. And the Lord, that's not Jesus, that's his master, commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Jesus' praise begins in the middle of verse 8 and includes verse 9. There's some clarification in this praise. He sets the table for it. He, first of all, 
uses the, the character description, <coughs> the unjust steward. The praise in no way justifies the unjust part. Then he defines it further, wisely. The praise by the Lord of the unjust steward, that word wisely, is translated from a word phronimos, it means thoughtful, prudently. It is not the character he's praising that is uh, or commending. What's praised by the master or by the Lord here is not the steward's dishonesty, but his resourcefulness. Not his corruption, but his promptness. Not his fraud, but his foresight. The comparisons that are made are made between the children of the world. Look at verse number 8. The children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Jesus draws this comparison. By the way, can I tell you, these are the only two categories. Everybody in this room, everybody in Brookings, everybody in South Dakota, everybody in America and on belong in one of these two categories. Children of the world or children of light. Saved and lost. Life and death. Godly and ungodly. Children of this world are those devoted to this world, living for the temporal. They're the unsaved. They walk in spiritual darkness. Children of light are the redeemed, followers of the light of the world. John chapter 8, verse 11. It may seem strange here that Jesus praises the unsaved, children of the world, over the saved, children of light. But there's a key phrase here, in their generation. He is not comparing these two groups concerning the condition of their soul. Lose what he is comparing. He's comparing how they each act in their own sphere of interest. Follow me now. People of the world are wiser only in their generation. This wisdom doesn't last long. It's deeply flawed. It doesn't take into account the world to come. But here's the truth, I believe, that's being made here. The world does better in how they go about their worldly concerns than Christians do in going about their spiritual concerns. Don't bump your neighbor. I think he's talking about you. Yes, I am. Talking about me too. That's convicting, isn't it? The world is better going about their concerns than Christians are going about ours. If the typical employee treated his job like many Christians treat church, be fired in three days. We aren't as faithful to our cause, our Christ who saved us, as the world often is to what they're concerned with. The praise that the steward gets here is his foresight, his fervency, uh, not his fraud. And the foresight, he saw that he had a great need for the future, so he prepared for it quickly. His foresight is commendable. We all need to have good foresight for ourselves, remembering our life and our eternity. Also his fervency. He went about his business earnestly. He immediately resolved to do what he could. His fervency is praise, not his foulness. We need to be prepared, and we need to be fervent about preparing for the future. The world often outshines us in its fervency, in its faithfulness, and in its foresight. How much more diligent are the children of this world working for temporal things than are the children of light working for eternal things? That's a convicting thought. People will spend endless time in devotion, self-denial, diligence, being the fastest runner in the world, learning how to master a musical instrument, playing on a professional sports team, 
It is a sad day, friend, when someone expends more effort to put a ball through the hoop than a child of God expends in trying to win a lost world for Jesus Christ. And that's what I believe Jesus is trying to show us here. I believe the point he's trying to make, this is the lesson from the crook. Shame on us for our lackluster performance in spiritual matters. Too often the world shows more zeal and dedication than the child of God does. Let that not be said about us. We are working toward a higher purpose than anyone or anything in this entire world has to offer. Eternity. Now let's work toward it. Look at the counsel and the praise. In making the application here, Jesus gives a command to Christians regarding their finances. Verse 8 speaks in general terms. Verse 9 is limited to finances. He talks about the mammon of unrighteousness. It is speaking there primarily of money. Not This does not mean that money is always evil. No, not at all. Money is not evil. It is not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. If you have money, happy for you. Praise God. And I want to be your friend. All right? Uh, this does not mean money is always evil. But it certainly does, I think we all agree, have corrupting potential. Amen? Money can corrupt. And so Jesus says, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. What does that mean? Well, I, one of the way, and I could be wrong, but the way I read this and see this, I believe that we're to make money our friend, not our enemy, in the way that we use it. So many people use their money in a way that makes money their enemy. If you spend it on liquor, on drugs, on other sinful things, guess what that's going to do? It's going to hurt you. It'll be your enemy. On the other hand, using your money for God's work, uh, doing it right by your family, it is a wise investment. It'll bring eternal rewards. You're thereby making friends out of the mammon of unrighteousness. Money can be a good thing, amen? Money can be used to get to further the kingdom of Christ. And so invest in the right things. So that, he goes on to say, when you fail. The fail is, the word fail there is eklapo. It is talking about the, fi not, not financial failure, but actually the end of your life. The word's also found in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, 1 verse 12. As a vesture thou shalt fold them up, they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall fail not. Eklapo, same word there. Talks of eternal life. Well, here in our text, it's talking about your death. So that when you fail, when you die, when you pass on, you know, I'll tell you what our problem is. We're spending our resources as if we're going to live forever. We're spending our resources as if this is all that there is. Look, it's natural for the children of the world to put all their investment into the world. This is all there is for them. This is all that they have their eyes on. We ought to set our sights just a little bit higher. Psalm 37, 1 and 2, Fret not thyself because of the evildoers, for they shall soon be cut down like grass. By the way, we're not glorying in that. We want to do everything we can to prevent that. But at no time ever should we look at a lost and dying world with envy. Let's take them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the child of God, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Now it begs the question that every one of us need to ask ourselves here this morning. What am I living for? What am I investing in? What will I have to show for in the end? In reference here, uh, it refers to our everlasting habitations. Jesus warns us to use our money wisely so that when we die, 
we might have blessings in heaven. Let's not live like this is all there is, because it's not. I'm glad to be alive. I'm enjoying life. I hope you are too. It's a good, hey, God's given us a great world to live in. Amen? And uh, until our politicians take it over and ruin it, but until then, it's good. Amen? We're able to enjoy life, and we should. But in the middle of it all, don't put your focus, your primary focus, on on temporal things. They'll pass away. Let's put our eyes on eternal things. Once upon a time, there was a crook. He was smart enough to prepare for his future. Jesus used this crook to teach us a lesson. Lesson from a crook. Let's have your head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know, friend, where this has hit you today, but I do believe that every single one of us could use a refresher, could use a, uh, could, could be, uh, take a moment and just refocus ourselves and put our priorities right. How many of us living for this world, mammon of this world, rather than bringing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're here today, friend, and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, don't leave without making that decision today. You come forward at the altar, someone will take a Bible and show you how you can know that you know that you know you're on your way to heaven. Dear Christian, if you're here and you need to settle something before God, the altar is open.